0: In the talk this evening, I want to introduce a theme that I'll explore in a few more talks uh, during this month. So tonight, what I want to do is kind of introduce the general outlines of the theme and give kind of an overview of it. And in the next few talks, I want to expand and explore it some more. The theme is around the creation of the self in the teachings of the Buddha, and I'm sure you know that the Buddha said that this sense of self is not intrinsic to the experience of being a human in a body, but is something that we generate out of our views and beliefs and concepts. And at the same time, this sense of self is what limits us so strongly. When you look at the basic human potential, we have this limitless awareness with a capacity to fill it with a boundless sense of loving kindness. That's the reality of our nature. And yet, how often do we open to that immensity? Or how often is our attention contracted and constricted and made small by this sense of self and self-concern? You can track it moment by moment You know, how many moments during the day were you in that vast space of openness and boundless loving kindness? How many moments of the day was there concern about, how am I doing? So we generate this concern about the I over and over and over again, out of certain kind of predictable ways of thinking and feeling and acting. And it's this regeneration again and again in the belief in, in something solid being pointed to with the sense of I that creates a lot of the sense of bondage. So I want to explore in these talks over the next three weeks maybe how this sense of self gets put together and then how the tools of the Dharma allow us to understand it, not be taken in by it, and return the mind to that original sense of vastness, openness, and boundlessness. So, you know, in one way, the description of the limitation is really simple. Pascal talked last night about clinging and the four types of clinging. The Buddha said at one point, uh, don't cling to anything whatsoever. One who has heard this has, un- has heard all the dharmas. One who has practiced this has practiced all the dharmas. That's really simple, right? <laughs> or the second and third noble truths. The cause of suffering is craving. The third noble truth, the end of suffering is the end of craving. Oh, it's so simple. So it's just craving or clinging. But each of those has lots of layers and operates in so many subtle ways in our minds and in our experience that the mechanics of suffering actually get pretty complex. So what we want to look at is all the mechanics that go into the creation, the generation, the continuing regeneration of this sense of self, because it's kind of our um, fundamental human activity, reasserting the I and the mind and how that involves us with suffering and then how we can get free from it. So the the concepts that I'll bring in tonight and over these talks are drawn from the very central teachings of the Buddha. So we'll touch on the four noble truths, um, dependent origination, karma, not-self, conceptual proliferation, uh, becoming, the end of karma, nibbana, and freedom. These are all, can, all these central teachings are kind of pointing to the same thing where we get caught and limited and small, and how we release that to return to our basic openness and vastness. All the teachings are pointing to the same movement. So that's what we want to explore in. Uh, in some detail. And I also, I have to warn you, um, this is the first time I've tried to put this stuff together. So it's still a little chaotic in my own mind. And um, the risk is that you're going to get bored and I'm going to feel stupid. So um, just to set expectations accordingly. (laughs) So, the thing that I uh, notice at the beginning of a retreat, you know, you all talk about it, I really notice it when I go into retreat, is we come into this quiet place, we don't have very much to do, we've dropped all our outer activity, which was so busy, and kept the mind in such a momentum of thinking and feeling and doing and planning and creating. We come into this really simple environment, does that mental activity stop? Not right away, does it? I mean, the first few days, that's what we hear from you a lot in interviews. Wow, the mind is still so busy or so restless. In between, it falls asleep, but when it wakes up, (laughs) it gets really busy again. So why is that? You know, why can't we just look at the situation and say, oh, I don't need to be so busy now. I'm in a meditation retreat. I can just stop thinking Why is it so difficult to stop? I think the thing is that that level of doing has a lot of momentum. And it's driven partly out of habit and it's driven partly out of uh, deep emotional tendencies. So we'll look at that a little bit. But this process of stopping is very valuable in meditation. And a lot of you are mentioning you know, how it's slowing down and sometimes coming to real peace already in these, these first few days. And of course, this is really important. This quality of non-doing is a very high value in Buddhism. Of course, we need to do in our worldly life. We need to do in our meditation. But it's all, in meditation, it's all leading to this ability to not do. So non-doing is a very, very high, high value and very, very freeing. Carol and I were on staff at IMS in the late 70s together with another of our good friends, uh, still a good friend today, named Steve Armstrong. And we did a staff retreat early on when we were there. And at the end of the retreat, we found Steve had spent his time drawing up this advertising brochure for IMS, right? That's what Yogi Mind does, it gets really creative. So Steve had a set of colored pencils and made a three-page fold-out brochure advertising Insight Meditation Society. And it had things like, you know, the vacation of your dreams, no talking, no swimming, no eating afternoon, no tennis, no golf. And on and on. And the motto for the center, which is kind of at the center of the opening page, was, it's better to do nothing than to waste time. <laughs> so we can take that as a pointer. It's better to do nothing than to do lots of things, in fact. But it's not, it's not so easy, even for you know, people at fairly advanced levels of practice. One of the teachers I've been inspired by in recent years and who some of my friends follow really closely is a young Tibetan Lama named Mingyur Rinpoche. He has an organization that covers the world. He has monasteries in Nepal and in India, he has headquarters in Minneapolis and in this country thousands of students around the world. I would say probably thousands of monks and nuns and another set of thousands of lay students. He's a very impressive uh, being. He's probably about 35 now. And he has this uh, combination, kind of like the Dalai Lama has, of a very deep meditation practice and a very broad outer vision. So he has a lot of projects in the world, but he's someone who's completed a lot of retreat practice and study, and has a deep meditation background and philosophical understanding. So here he is, 35 years old, with all this responsibility, monasteries, nunneries, monastic followers, lay followers. So about a year and a half ago, Mingyur Rinpoche announced he was going to drop it all and go into three-year retreat. And then this past May... He was in Bodh and preparing to leave, and everybody thought that there would be a time to say goodbye and wish him well and make sure he got on the right bus and pack his toothbrush for him. And then one day he just wasn't there anymore. <laughs> People went in to take him his lunch and his room was empty. And he had left actually without his toothbrush or his passport or any money. He had just left in the middle of India because this call toward the kind of the realization from non-doing was so strong. He'd had a deep call since he was a teenager to be back in a three-year retreat. And he left his whole worldly organization and commitments and responsibilities in the hands of others and just walked away for three years. I can't tell you how inspired I was by that this is what the old masters used to do, was to say that the realization of the Buddha's teaching is more important than trying to take care of things in the world. So I really admired his example, and I'm I'm looking forward to doing something similar at some point. (laughs) Not three years. <laughs> Mingyur Rinpoche isn't married. <laughs> so, where does all this where does all this uh, energy behind doing come from? You know, and I'm going to suggest a a kind of source. I think if we look closely, that on some level we all know that the world isn't really a secure place, that we've kind of noticed the changing nature, that we've tried to construct happiness over 20, 30, 40 or more years. It hasn't really come to a lasting, solid place yet. And we're kind of aware of the impermanent and insecure underpinning of the whole enterprise. And I think it's as a defense against seeing that total amount of change, impermanence, and lack of security that the psyche wants to try to construct something lasting and that's why it embarks on the enterprise of the self. We can't find consistency out there. Let's see if we can find it in here in this concept around I. And so one of the ways that we go about it, the I, as you've noticed, likes pleasure, doesn't like pain. So how can we feed it? Oh, let's try to keep the pleasant coming and the unpleasant not coming. And let's not look too closely at what we do while we do that. So I would say these are the three fundamental strategies of mind that let us cope with the truth of insecurity, the truth of impermanence. The first is the force of desire. Because I know things are always going to be changing. Let me try to keep the pleasant coming all the time. And this is the mind movement of greed or lobha. The second basic strategy is, let me try to be secure by always pushing away the unpleasant. This kind of has two modes. One is the aggressive mode, which really pushes on what's unpleasant or threatening. The other is the and that's the mode, you might say, of anger. The other is the fear mode, that instead of pushing, tries to pull back and move away from anything that's threatening. So both of these are the motive force of aversion. And then the third is, we don't want to look too closely at what we're doing, because if we did, we'd see it wouldn't work. And that clouding over is the work of delusion. So these are the three kilesas. Greed, aversion, and delusion. Greed and aversion are always accompanied by delusion or they wouldn't be able to be sustained. And the other thing that delusion does is it kind of um, keeps us out of touch with what's happening. So it's another way of insulating ourselves or taking a step back from the impingement of that contact that Pascal talked about last night. So these are the three basic forces of mind. And it's important to see that these are strategies. These are not just kind of accidents that happen to have been planted in the psyche by some alien force. These grow out of the human heart. And this is the way that we all try to cope with the uncertainty of existence of our situation. So this is when Carol mentioned in her talk that the essence of samsara is trying to correct. These are the mechanisms we use to carry out that correction. And you can, see, you, know, you can see this in the days that you've been here already. Why are the sittings not completely peaceful? Because we're trying to make the body a little more comfortable. Or do away with that pain and tension that's cropped up in our shoulder blade. Or try to return to that concentrated, peaceful sitting that we had early in the day, or try to feel again the great loving kindness we had for our benefactor, or try to push away the fear, anxiety, or anger, or resentment that's arising in the moment. We keep just trying to make it a little bit better, a little bit better, and this is the action of greed and aversion, supported by delusion, and it keeps us from peace, from rest, from ease and from non-doing. So this is the acti- basically the activity of the self. Now, there's another word for this kind of activity because it has a motivation. This is karma. Karma in the Buddhist language is simply action with an intention or a motive. So another way to describe this is we're constantly acting, trying to get something from the situation, and it's all about myself. All these little adjustments. Did you spend a lot of time today worrying about the global economy? (laughs) Did you spend a lot of time worrying about the unemployment rate being at 8.3%? I mean, maybe we should be spending more time worrying about climate change, for example. Um, but most of the worries tend to be about, about me. Ajahn Amro has this great talk title. Um, he's the abbot of Amravati now in England. He has a talk on becoming, which is also about the formation of self. And the subtitle is, Why Public Speaking is More Terrifying Than Worldwide Nuclear Destruction. <laughs> it kind of is, isn't it? <laughs> So, because we see this kind of underlying uncertainty, openness, impermanence, we want to build a sense of I that can bring in some, uh, some degree of solidity. We need to keep fortifying that sense of I because it's, it's not inherently there. So every time a new experience comes along, we need to kind of sweep it into this creation of self. So as we go throughout our day, we take the events of the day and we use them to recreate the sense of I. And we, we generally create some kind of self-image or self-view that lasts over time that we can uh, bolster through this. And I'll get back to this a little later with the quality of uh, perception. So we form a self-image which should extend over time so that we can have the sense that the I is something. And interestingly enough, karmic patterns tend to reinforce that image. It's like the patterns in the image start to uh, reinforce each other. So things begin out of just a single passing thought, but they solidify over time. This is one way that it's been expressed. The thought becomes an intention. The intention manifests as an action. The action develops into habit and habit hardens into character. Therefore, watch closely the thought and let it spring from love for all beings. This quote has been attributed to the Buddha, but I haven't been able to find it in the text, and I don't, I don't know the source of it. But I want to read it again because it's quite important. The thought becomes an intention. The intention manifests as an action. The action develops into habit, and habit hardens into character. You know, especially at my age, having observed a lot of uh, the passing years and seeing the formation of character, I really feel the reality of this and once character is formed it's not so easy to undo. And I wish I had known this when I was 20. Because the character is really so much more malleable when we're young. So I really just want to welcome all the young people in the audience and happy that you are getting this wisdom that you're that you're growing up in when you still have so much openness available. So it's interesting, you know, neuroscience is confirming a lot of this, a lot of this stuff. And a a, a way that this is kind of spoken, um, this formation of character out of habit that's repeated many times, is when the neuroscientists say, um, neurons that fire together wire together. So as they repeat and repeat and repeat kind of a similar associated action they get wired together in that way that makes it likely that that will happen again and again. I was curious about the source of this quote, and I thought, well, maybe this has come out of the research in the last ten years. This actually came out of a neuropsychologist in 1949. So this has been around for a while. So our own actions, both of mind, of speech, and of body, really shape... The mind and its patterns, its habits, the character that gets formed from it, even when it's not appropriate to the setting. Just like coming in from a busy life and the momentum of our thinking actions carry over into here. So, one of the, you know, there are a lot of different patterns that happen for people. The one that I brought into meditation was a habit of fear. And I can, I can sort of trace the, the origin of this in my early 20s. I had some kind of very confusing episodes as I was getting into early adulthood and left me with a lot of fear in my body that then came out as I got quiet and, and meditated. And one year in England, it was in the early 80s, I'd gone over to do a period of retreat with Christopher Titmus and Christina Feldman this is the forerunner of Gaia House. It was called East Farmhouse. It was a beautiful little rented house out in the country in Wiltshire, not far from Salisbury. And uh, it was rented from a retired colonel uh, from the British military. And he didn't have a clue what we were doing there. <laughs> One of the people in the organizing group of the house was an honorable. That means he's the son of a lord. And he can put honorable on his checking account. And when the colonel saw that there was an honorable involved in the organization, he said, he must be a good guy. Son of a lord, I'll rent the house to him. So the honorable's name was was on the lease. But the colonel didn't know what was going on in the house. But he would periodically drop in to visit. And so he came at one time that was a meditation period, And they showed him around the house. He wanted to make sure things were being taken care of, so they took him into the conservatory and the kitchen and the front room. But the meditation hall in this little house was in a little back room that looked out onto the back garden. You Maybe maybe call it a drawing room or a parlor or something. And they felt they had to show him that room, too. Well, that's where the meditation was going on. So they opened the door for the colonel, who, of course, has no idea what's happening. It happens to be a period of standing meditation. (laughs) Twenty-five people are standing stock still and silent in the middle of the colonel's drawing room. They open the door and he looks on this site. Then they close the door and all he can say is, well, you certainly have them well-trained, don't you? (laughs) So... That was our summer at East Farmhouse. Mm-hmm. It was really a beautiful location. We were there in July. And I was doing another evening. Not The Colonel was not there. I was doing standing meditation in the back garden. And my eyes were closed, and I was standing out on the grass. And this fear was coming, um, as it, it came often in those days in my practice, and I was just trying to be grounded and feel it in the body and open to it in the mind. And it just kept coming. And for some reason, in the middle of that standing meditation, I just decided to open my eyes. And I was standing next to a tree that was in bloom. And the petals were all around me. The sun was going down and the garden was just kind of bathed in that golden light of the last light of the day. The birds were starting to call because they were thinking about going to bed for the evening. And the whole thing was just held in this soft British air, the little bit of humidity that made it just like something out of a storybook. It was like something out of Jane Austen. It was so beautiful and so soft and so reassuring. And I just thought to myself, wow, it's really a scary world, isn't it? <laughs> I was in this state of fear in a beautiful and completely safe environment. It had no relation to where I was or what I was doing. It was so out of place. But that's what happens with these patterns, these karmic patterns. I just continued to frighten myself for no reason whatsoever. So these habits and of the patterns that we find ourselves in come into the mind, and of course they come into the body, too. So often as we come to practice, we see the movements of mind, and we feel those directly in our body. And that's why it's so important that we start the retreat, and I really hope everyone, trust everyone is practicing this way, that we learn to bring mindfulness throughout the body, so that we can really feel the the life of the body make space for all the emotions that live in the body, and get to know our emotional life through meeting it in the body. Sometimes there's a lot of old information there that we need to really fill with our awareness, pervade with our awareness, as the way that it can be felt and then released. So this mindfulness of the body, which is the first foundation the Buddha taught, so essential for coming to know ourselves and come in touch with this heritage of our own karma our own actions mental actions and and outside actions so these create all these past actions create patterns that express themselves in our feelings in our thoughts and then in our um, in our actions in life so you know you I'm sure you can see in your own personality what some of these patterns are. And everybody has patterns of strength that uh, come from wholesome qualities, whether it's kindness or generosity, understanding, happiness, contentment. Those patterns fill one's life. And we all work with patterns of difficulty. As meditators, you've probably gotten quite uh, familiar with what those patterns are for you. And for a lot of us in meditation, these patterns of our mental actions become the single kind of biggest problem in life as we get to understand our makeup and kind of understand our conditioning and the patterns that that live within us, live within our mind and live within our body. So the one that I had to work with for a long time was fear. And got a lot of understanding. I really appreciate its presence because I learned so much from it. For others, it you know it could be um, self judgment or shame. It could be various kinds of addiction or dependencies. So we all work with you know different of these legacies when people have been. Um, abused early in life, sometimes the patterns that, they, that they're left with are not so much from their own generation, their own creation, as what has been um, imposed on them through that mistreatment. But nonetheless, they continue to live until they're understood and, and can be released. But there's not, not as much of a sense of uh, ownership with them. So we start to understand ourselves in this way and these patterns in our self-view start to go together. You know, I understood myself as someone who was fearful. And then the fear would continue and that would kind of confirm this understanding of the view which would kind of hold it in place. So the self-view supports the pattern. The pattern supports the self-view. How do we work beyond it? So there's an interesting sutta that kind of describes how some of this gets gets rolling. It's called the Honeyball. It's uh, number 18 in the Majjhima Nikaya. There's a story with a lot of these suttas. So I kind of want to tell the story also because you get a glimpse of the life of the Buddha and the the culture at the time in India. This is about 500 BCE. So the Buddha was living at this time in uh, Kapilavatthu, which is where he had grown up. He had returned, after a lot of wandering, returned periodically to the place that he grew up. And a lot of his uh, monks and close disciples came from there, including his, his attendant, Ananda. Ananda is with him in this story. So we assume this is in the Buddha's later years, because Ananda became his attendant for the last 25 years of his life, which would mean from the time he was 55 on. So let's say the Buddha's in his um, late middle age, probably. Maybe 55 to 60. So he was quite established as a teacher by this time. And um, he never betrayed a lot of uh, self-doubt. But he had a lot of confidence by this point in time. So he was, um, he was in meditation. And uh, someone came up to him whose name was Dandapani. And from the name in the commentary, the name refers to a stick. And so we understand that he was walking with a stick, and the commentary says that it was a golden stick. So even though Dandapani was a young man, he was walking with a golden stick. And you get the impression he was a bit of a dandy, kind of as the name suggests. And at this time in, in India all the spiritual seekers like to go around and debate one another. And it was, you know, it was kind of like um, ultimate cage fighting, <laughs> but on a verbal level. <laughs> and if you could knock the other person out of the ring, you established yourself as the best teacher in that area. So Dandapani probably came from that background, and he came up to the Buddha. And um, it said, after courteous greetings, one wonders how courteous it was, but He stood at one side, leaned on his stick, and asked the Blessed One, what does the recluse assert? What does he proclaim? This is not a very respectful greeting for the time, so you get the feeling Dandapani is just waiting for the Buddha to come out with something, and he's going to launch an attack. So the Buddha, who is no dummy, says, friend, I assert and proclaim such a teaching that one does not quarrel with anyone in the world. That kind of cut the ground out from under Dandapani. And it said, when this was said, Dandapani shook his head, wagged his tongue, and raised his eyebrows until his forehead was puckered in three lines. Then he departed leaning on his stick. So we understand that Dandapani was kind of frustrated by the Buddha's non-contention with him. But then the Buddha related this story to the monks and then went off for a rest or something. And the monks, talking among themselves, said, well, what exactly did the Blessed One mean by a doctrine whereby one doesn't dispute with anyone? And a senior monk was there named Mahakachana. Mahakachana was uh, said to be the monk who was foremost in explaining in detail what the Buddha had explained in brief. So they asked him, well, what did he mean by that? And then Mahakachana delivers the bulk, the main body of this sutta. And he explained it like this. Dependent on the eye and forms, eye consciousness arises. The meeting of the three is contact. So Pascal mentioned this last night. When the eye is working and there are sights to be seen, those come together in eye consciousness. That's the experience of seeing. It's called eye consciousness. So that's what we're doing all the time when the eyes are opening. Eye consciousness is arising with different content, different forms, different sights meet us. With contact as condition, there is feeling. So again Pascal explained this feeling can be either pleasant, unpleasant or neither. And this is how we get impinged on all the time with this changing array of pleasure and unpleasure in life. Then it goes on with contact as condition there is feeling. What one feels, that one perceives. So now we get it we're getting close to the heart of the sutta which is this quality of perception. Perception means something a little different in Buddhist terminology than in Western philosophy, psychology. Western philosophy, psychology, I understand perception just means the sense data itself. You know, I Perceive means I have a sight. In the Buddhist teaching, that's called contact, or seeing consciousness. And perception is a higher level function of the mind, more cognitive, that recognizes... What has been seen and puts it in a category. So in looking around the room, you know what what we really see is patches of form and color. That's all the eye really sees. But then there's this organizing principle in the brain that puts it into categories, and we see um, men and women and cushions and chairs, walls, lamps, doors, paintings, and so on. That recognition piece is the act of perception. We're classifying the world into categories that we know based on memory. And perception's a really interesting thing to investigate because the world kind of springs up from perception. And that's what the sutta is going to point to. What one feels, that one perceives. So we categorize it. You know, friend, not, woman, man, etc. What one perceives, that one thinks about. It's true, isn't it? When we recognize something, then we'll often start to think about that thing that we've just seen. And then it continues. What one thinks about, that one mentally proliferates. And here's the catch. We don't just think about it in a simple way like That's a tanka of the Buddha. It's painted in the Tibetan style. It represents Shakyamuni Buddha, who is Gautama Buddha in our tradition. And let it go like that. But we start going, wow, that is such a cool tanka! I'd like to have one like that in my living room. (laughs) Now, Mary Ann has some art down in the bookstore. I know I shouldn't go down during the retreat, But if I don't, somebody else might get there first. And I do have my checkbook. It's up in my room, but I could go now right after the sitting and get the checkbook and go down and look for that tanka. And if they don't have a tanka like that, I think a metal Tibetan Buddha would be just as good. I saw last time I was in there, there were some bronze ones, there were some gold ones. One was a little more expensive, but, oh, my checking account is so low. Uh Uh-oh. I don't know if I have enough money to write a check. What could I call my partner who's at home and get them to deposit a check into my account? If they write my bank number on the back, the bank will accept the deposit. Now what is my bank number? But I'm not sure my partner has enough money for the Buddha either, so I better call a friend. This is where the proliferation starts from just the thinking. And this is described by the Pali word papancha. It's much nicer than proliferation. Papancha. So this is where the trouble begins. Because as we start to mentally proliferate, we don't always stay in neutral territory. You know, it's only a few steps from the tanka to our checkbook in the absence of money in our checking account and how are we going to get it there and so on. And that creates anxiety and worry. So because the eye is so central, our thoughts tend to run around the eye, and that creates disturbance. And so this is what the Buddha points to, actually Mahakachana, but essentially the Buddha, points to in the next line. With what one has mentally proliferated as the source, perceptions and notions tinged by mental proliferation beset a person with respect to past future and present forms cognizable through the eye. Perceptions and notions beset a person. So listen to how this is unfolded. At first, it's just kind of a passive process. Eye consciousness arises. With contact as a condition, feeling arises. That's just passive. It's just happening, impersonal. Now we turn to action. What one feels, that one perceives. So now there's kind of an active mental component, which is the recognizing and classifying of the thing. What one perceives, one thinks about. So once we've identified the tanka, then we think about it a little bit. Tibetan Tonka, Buddha image, Gautama Buddha. So this is active, but it's not really yet problematic because it's staying close to the source. We're still um, in charge, as it were. But notice what happens in the next line. With what one has mentally proliferated, perceptions and notions beset one with regard to past, present, and future. All of a sudden, we're not in charge anymore, but stuff is starting to assault us based on past associations, based on our patterns, based on our karma, based on our clinging and craving, we become the victim of our own thoughts and feelings. So these thoughts and feelings come together. Sometimes a thought triggers a feeling, sometimes a feeling triggers a thought. They run together, and Papancha brings it all back to us. So we we expose ourselves to kind of the craziness of the mind just running on at that point. And that's the activity of Papancha. And it starts from perception. That's what the sutta is pointing to. This first recognition of a thing. So, if we just say, you know, man, woman, chair, wall, door, light, That's not too charged, right? That's pretty easy. But what if the perception is of something that we care about? Okay, let's start with something simple. If I say car, you can perceive that, right? Brings up an image, fairly neutral, right? Car, pretty generic, it's a tool, we all use them. What if I say Prius? How do you feel? Mmm, we like. (laughs) We like Prius environmentally friendly, my friends drive them, 50 miles to the gallon, not so expensive, uses electricity, good feeling. Right? Now what if I say Hummer? How does that feel? Oh, too big gas guzzler, uses too much petroleum, pollutes atmosphere, not so happy about Hummer. So, we have different perceptions based on our values. Or you could say that perception carries a felt meaning. There's there's some kind of mood with this um, action of perception. And that's what, it's the felt meaning which we've acquired through association, through our own investment, that triggers a lot of the feelings with perception. Simple example. I did a six-week, retreat one year doing loving-kindness practice at IMS on the East Coast, and my difficult person was on the retreat. (laughs) So I would go along, and I was having a lot of metta, self, benefactor, friend. It was rolling really well. Then my difficult person would walk across my field of vision. (laughs) Perception of difficult person, I'd spin out into anger. And I just remember all the difficult things that had happened in the past year and I could be lost for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. And I'd been in a state of a lot of metta. My body was soft and open and relaxed. And then I moved into this anger and it was like everything turned into a steel trap. It was so painful to go into that. And so it took me quite a while to learn how to work with that situation. And it came out of all the past associations that I had with that person, and then all the papancha that came in relating to the past, what I might say in the future, that whole range of relationship stuff based on the papancha, based on the perception. Here's another one. Empty chair. Pretty neutral, right? What's a big deal about an empty chair? But, depending on the setting, empty chair can have really different perception qualities. So if I'm in a social setting, could be like a meeting, could be like a conference, could even be a retreat, and I get to the dining room early, and I sit at a table where nobody else is sitting, but I have two empty chairs on the side. That feels fine. As the dining hall starts to fill up, and all the other chairs are filled in. If my chairs are still empty, oh, that starts to feel a little weird. I start to feel isolated. Un- unlikable. Oh, nobody wants to sit next to me. What's wrong, you know, what's wrong with me? Nobody likes me. So the empty chairs start to take, I start to perceive them as something a little threatening. And then somebody comes along and sits in one and I feel so grateful. Oh, I've been rescued, rescued from my loneliness. Thank you. So that's one empty chair. That's based on um, Papancha, it said, is, comes in three flavors. It can be uh, generated out of craving, it can be generated out of views, it can be generated out of the comparing mind. So this one, generated out of some view. Oh, maybe people don't like me, maybe there's something wrong. So some view about myself, not, um, not self-worth, not self-worthy. So another Papancha example with empty chair. I'm on an airplane. I have the aisle seat. And people are getting on board. I've gotten on early and people are getting on board the plane. And I'm looking at everybody come down the aisle. And I just have a lot of compassion for people. Because traveling is so stressful these days. And here comes a mother down the aisle with two children. And she's carrying all their gear as, you know, as well as her carry-on. A lot of compassion, a lot of friendliness toward them. Airplanes filling up. Getting nearly full and my chair is still empty next to me. Wow. Now I really like the empty chair. <laughs> I might have a whole flight from San Francisco to Boston with empty chair next to me. Now everybody coming down the aisle is a threat. (laughs) I hope they don't take my empty chair. I don't want them to sit in my empty chair. And if they look like they're about to, I really get (laughs) aversive. So this time, the perception is empty chair means, oh, protects my space. So this is the craving part. I like my space on a long flight. So this is the craving part. First one was the view part, view about myself. This one is the craving part. Same deal of empty chair, but a different perception of it on the basis of that assumption or papancha. Another another example of perception. When I was sitting that retreat over Thanksgiving we were sitting quite a few hours in the hall during the day. I think we were sitting about eight hours a day with everything put together. And um, some of the periods were quite long, and you know, my legs would get sore, and I'd, I'd adjust my posture in the middle of a sit or talk or something. But I tried to sit through and, and got better during the, during the days as they went by. But one of, the, um, one of the monks on the retreat who was sitting up front would come in for the afternoon sit. He'd plop down on his cushion at about 2 o'clock, and you know, we'd break for walking period. I'd get up and walk, come back in, sit. He was still sitting. Sit through the next sitting or talk. Get up. He'd still be sitting. You know, so he'd start at 2, and he'd go to about 5, and he wouldn't move. And here I would be you know, squirming after an hour or something, and so I'd, I'd tough it out, and then I'd get up and go walk. And I'd think to myself, oh my God, I'm such a crummy sitter. After all these years, I'm supposed to be a meditation teacher, and I can't sit like that. And he was, he was younger than me, although he had a lot of years in the monkhood, so he had, he had done a lot of sitting. I thought, I'm such a crummy meditator. And then at the end of the retreat, one of the other women who was sitting the retreat came up and said, um, wow, you really sat well this retreat. He said, you sat like a rock. I couldn't believe it. I was squirming all the time, but I'd look at you and you were just sitting absolutely still. And so in her mind, I was a good sitter because she was comparing herself to me, but when I was comparing myself to the monk, I was not a good sitter. So it was the same experience, but it just depends whether you're being compared, because it's all relative, whether you're comparing up or down. There's no intrinsic worth to my sitting on that retreat, but I could either feel inferior or superior, depending on how I wanted to compare, where I wanted to perceive. So these are really simple things. Empty chairs, length of time sitting. What if the perception is around your partner, your child, your parent, your body? Sally and James and I had the chance a couple of weeks ago to visit an anatomy lab at a college in Santa Cruz, and um, we got to sit and stand next to bodies that had that they had dissected. They had cadavers from a hospital, and the students in the lab had uh, dissected them really quite thoroughly. So you know, a couple of weeks ago, I was standing with half a skull in my hand that still had the brain in it and looking at that. And at first, when we stood next to the bodies, the faces were wrapped in cloth. So there was just the the body, which had been opened and we could look at the organs. And then partway through, the professor removed the wrappings from the face. And it became very moving. The particular body that we were next to first was an old man. He was quite small. I mean, he wasn't that tall. But, you know, as we die, we shrink. As we get older, we shrink a little bit. As we die, we, we tend to shrink. And so he was quite small. And his face was in a... Um, there was some exclamation. It It wasn't just passive. It didn't look like he died in complete peace. But his mouth was open and there was a little bit of a sense of um, some anguish at his death. And it was, it was so moving because you could sort of feel the end of, you could see almost the end of his life in his facial expression. And then it wasn't going to change. And I thought about, I mean, the purpose of these reflections and these experiences is to imagine, you know, what if that was me? And what if I'm looking at my face as a little shrunken old man, you know, which could be next year, it could be in 10 years or 20 years or whatever, but it's going to happen. What if I was looking at me? So that's a perception that has the power to touch off some papancha. That's a perception that has some power to grab us based on our, our clinging to this body, based on our investing and, and loving you know, and taking care of this body for so long. So these perceptions, which we're touching throughout the day, often are fairly light but then some of them come along and are are quite striking. So we we want to start to notice when a perception forms that we start to proliferate around, what are the moods and emotions that are in that proliferation? Because what happens is, because of this, both the self-image and the patterns of mind that we've developed over many, 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 many actions, we have a kind of predictable response to things. And so we all, as meditators, we start to know our own patterns. You know, I'm a fearful person, or I'm a greedy person, or I'm an aversive person, or I'm a a shameful person, or I'm a self-critical person, or I'm an addictive person, like that. And so we start to see how when we meet these new incidents and we perceive something, the proliferation that's spun off from that, the way the mind spins out around it, recreates our sense of self. The sense of self is not intrinsic to that experience. Like the empty chair, there's nothing in an empty chair. But my perception of it can fill it with all kinds of stuff from my patterns and my karma and my, acti- my mental activities and my emotional inclination. So we want to be alert to that. When we spin out, how are we spinning? What is the the response showing us about the I, about the self? And is it possible at times that we have a perception, even around something that, that is meaningful and that has some charge for us, and we don't spin out? What's the quality of that experience? What's the quality of that kind of moment? We have a perception. It may be a meaningful perception. It may be deeply felt, but we don't spin out through over-proliferating about it. What happens then? Then we're holding that experience in the silence. We're receiving that experience. We can feel it. We can feel the the pathos of it. We can feel the compassion in it. We can feel the loving kindness in it. But we're not spinning out with it. And we hold it in this silence, which has a kind of intrinsic peace. And so there's not the creation of the self again. There's not the regeneration of the self-image. There's not the reconnecting to that old pattern, which is our way of becoming and and finding a self-identity to establish ourselves in. Likes and dislikes, which we do a lot, are a lot about establishing me again. We meet someone, we have to decide whether we like them or not. Why? Because that recreates the self with its tastes. Instead we can just see, there's that person. We can feel their their essence, but we don't have to take a stand for or against. Then we're not recreating the self with its wanting and not wanting, its likes and dislikes. Things are just held in this great spaciousness. And that's what we're developing here, is the ability to hold it in this great kind of non-reactive spaciousness that sees things as they are. When the old patterns come in, they tend to blind us to a degree. They, they narrow the sense of possibility in our universe to the predictability of self. And so we're just recreating this limited world again and again. When we start to discover this place of quiet and peace, then we start to open up to much greater range of possibilities. Things can touch us more deeply. And we start to experience that there's a, a greater choice in how we respond to that situation, how we respond to life in that situation. And this, this is the dawning of freedom. And it has to do with this quality of openness that's not covered over with all the conceptual activity. This is the pointer to the end of karma. Karma going on and on and on and on in its predictable patterns. And we start to find some openings through our meditation of peace. And as we find it, we start to see this unending flow of karma, which is wrapped up with self and the patterns and the self-view and the reinforcing the limits again and again. We can step out of that. Or a better way to say it, we don't step out of it. It is halted. That flow of becoming is halted. And then we are at peace with that original openness and vastness that is our nature, that is our birthright. So, this is the discovery, this is the unfolding, this is the release. That peace is not a constructed thing, that silence is not a constructed thing. It's what happens when we stop doing. When we stop doing, that peace is revealed. So we have come out of, I don't know if you remember in the opening night I talked about the Buddha's quest was searching for something beyond birth and death. Something beyond the constant law of change. This peace is beyond birth and death. This silence is beyond birth and death. This stopping is beyond birth and death. As we start to touch that in our meditation practice, we're starting to get the glimmer of something that lets us step outside the endless cycles of birth and death. We step outside the round of becoming and we find our place of ease in the deathless, in the unborn. So I mention this so that you can start to look for those periods of quiet. Now, I don't want to say that's the end of the journey. This piece is onward leading. It unfolds more and more. Ultimately, the Buddha says, up to the fullness of liberation. But this is the entry point. Once we have this, we have the taste of the goal. And then we just need to keep walking till we reach it. Okay. Thank you for your attention. We'll continue to develop this theme in in further talks. Thank you. Let's just sit for a minute and quiet together. From the Buddha. In my enlightenment, I discovered the unborn, unaging, unailing, undying, supreme security from bondage, Nibbana.